Well, friends, welcome to the Ransom Tart Podcast in episode seven, <laughs> our final episode here in this mega mini series on spiritual warfare, the seen and the unseen realm, and dealing with our adversary in order that we may have life. John Eldridge here with Alan to wrap things up and Obviously, if you're just tuning in, there are six wonderful installments waiting for your attention. You can certainly listen in on this one and then go back, but it's going to make a lot more sense if you've had the foundation that we've been laying and hopefully building on with some clarity. Because here in this episode, as we wrap things up, I know, I know, I know, there's a ton of questions, isn't there, Oh, yeah. Many questions. (laughs) We will do our best to just, we kind of sat around as a team and thought, well, what are they wondering? And I'm going to address some questions, going to address some deeper issues. And Jesus, as we enter into this, we simply invite your love. We declare the supremacy of your rule and your kingdom over each of our lives. We pray, let there be light when you promised the Holy Spirit to us, you said, I I can't explain everything to you right now, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so we ask for the help of your spirit to lead not only today's podcast, but just lead all of us in our understanding and in our maturity in these things. Saturate this with your love and your presence in your name. Let me um, come back to one of my favorite chapters in one of my favorite Gospels, John. The chapter is 10, and Jesus picks up in verse 1 to say, Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, like verily, verily, in the King James. When Jesus does the verily, verily thing, I mean, he is really trying to nail something. He's saying, look, this is super important. Heads up, pay attention. So he does it again, very truly, I tell you. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Friends, as we said in the opening installment on this, we are a group of people who are chasing life. We are chasing God. We are chasing wholeness and restoration, the joys of the kingdom of God. We are chasing 
intimacy with Jesus Christ. And in this passage, Jesus says, look, I want those very same things for you, but you have to understand your situation. He says, this is a dangerous world. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. There are false prophets. There's the ones who do not enter by the gate, but climb over the wall to try and steal the sheep. And then there is this thief. There is this enemy who steals, kills, destroys. Jesus says, look, this is a dangerous world. Stay close to me. Stay close to me. The the sheep that come in and go out and find pasture, the sheep that are doing well, are the sheep that are listening to the voice of Jesus. They're following in an intimacy with God. Because earlier in Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd, be cunning as snakes and innocent as doves. So the context of our series is actually not spiritual warfare. The context is intimacy with God, life with God. That's so helpful. The the treasures that God has for us, right? But there's a world that we have to navigate out there. And Jesus is very frank about it. Also, I think if I were to put something in context here as we kind of push into some things today, I want to read Matthew 28 again. We were talking about the power of Jesus' authority, but listen listen to the purpose within which that authority is imparted to us. Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. <laughs> like, what? Like, oh my gosh, like human nature. What is it with human nature? I mean, here is the resurrected Christ in front of them. Right. And they're like, me, <laughs> I, I'm not really sure about Ugh. this. Which I can feel some of our listeners, even in this series, kind of going, eh, I'm not really sure. Anyway, it just says, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus didn't send people out to evangelize. He sent them out to make disciples. We are seeking a deeper life in God. We are seeking to be students of God. We're seeking to obey everything Christ has commanded us. And thus, this series, this series falls really within a much larger framework of life with God. And this is true of anything in life, really. I was, Alan, I was thinking about parenting. Yes. You guys are getting ready to send your your first off high school graduation right. and going out into young adulthood. And there's a ton of questions. Oh, yes. <laughs> and more every day we're finding out as we're a few weeks away from that moment. Yes. Yeah. You were in here last week naming the questions of that week. And now there's questions for this week, oh, right? Totally. And yeah. there'll be some next week. And exactly. Navigating that, it feels like there is a way to do things, but even knowing how to do things, there are still more questions and more growth. 
And I think it's actually beautiful, friends. That can feel frustrating. It can feel exasperating in parenting or in marriage or in friendship or in church growth or in, you know, your career growth. You know, there's always a new dynamic. There's always a particular wrinkle to you, right? Yes, right. Like, yeah, I listened, I listened to that wonderful teaching on how to parent teenagers, but you don't know our son, you know. So, and that's why John chapter 10, that's why we have a shepherd, we have a guide, we have a counselor. My goodness, we have Jesus. And whether it's parenting or taking care of your health or learning to play an instrument, learning to drive a car, there's always something new Mm -hmm. that's in front of us that we have to learn to navigate. And it's just part of growing up. It's just part of maturing in this world. God is committed, by the way, to maturing us, isn't he? He is, whether we like it or not. (laughs) I see the look of exasperation on your face. (laughs) And so this episode, kind of wrapping up with some questions and some thoughts, like the spirit of this is, friends, God is deeply committed to our maturity. He's deeply committed to our discipleship. He wants us to walk very closely with him. And that's the only answer for parenting or finances or mission or career or calling or aging parents or spiritual warfare. Okay. So I just needed to say those things by way of introduction um, because we are going to push into some questions and some real technicalities in this field. And I don't want to get us lost in the weeds, Mm -hmm. right? You Mm -hmm. have God, you have God friends. He's with you. Well, and also as we go into some of these questions and and conversation, I think it's important to just name, if we wait until every question is answered, we'll be waiting forever before we step into, in this topic of spiritual warfare, how to proceed. So I'm going to throw out some questions to you, John, that I know I have, and I'm guessing some of the listeners have, and whether people have their questions answered or not, I think it's important just to name we have what we need to go forward in this yes, and we'll we learn do. as we step into it. Okay, John. So first question, we encourage people to pray the daily prayer. And one of those prayers is the head of the household prayer. But talk to me about, can somebody pray that if they have an unbelieving spouse How does that work? Do they have power over that or how effective would that be? Yes. Or in the case of perhaps a spouse who might be very ill at this point or severely disabled. Yes. So friends, we threw out a shout for the Ransomed Heart app several times in the series because on the app, there's a section of prayers. And one of the prayers that you've heard us talk about over the years is the daily prayer And part of the reason the daily prayer is so effective is because it recognizes the authority structures that are built into the kingdom of God. So you remember earlier in the series, we were talking about the significance of authority and how authority was surrendered by Adam and Eve. And that's how the evil one got province over the world, Mm -hmm. how Jesus Christ came and won that back through his life, his sinless life, his obedience to the Father, and then through his sacrificial death through his resurrection and his ascension, and then he can announce in Matthew 28, all authority is mine. So it's important to understand that the spiritual world works on the basis of authority. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to address some of the tensions around households where one spouse is not 
a believer or not walking with Christ. And I really appreciate what he says here when he says, for the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. So in other words, Paul is describing a situation where there is a sanctifying presence by the person in the family who is the believer. And I think this gives a great deal of spiritual authority to those spouses. These are benevolent structures that were placed into the world for the purpose of blessing, not for the purpose of oppression, not for the purpose of tyranny. When you understand the power of authority, for example, you have a lot of say, folks, over what goes on in your kingdom. Those things that are under your authority, your car, maybe not your neighbor's car, but your car, okay? Good. And your property. You have an apartment that you rent, you have authority over it. You have a motel room for a night, you have authority because the key was literally given to you. You paid for it. So learning how to invoke authority in your realm is a really helpful thing. And that's kind of the question realm we wanted to riff on for a moment. The daily prayer is built around authority. I bring my family, my household, my kingdom under the rule of Jesus today. It's a very helpful thing to do. But it does get into questions of, well, what do you have a situation where, you know, you've got an unbelieving husband, doesn't he have authority, but he doesn't know Christ and that sort of thing. And there are some technicalities in this field, as there is with playing the cello, as there is with learning to cast a fly rod, as there is with driving a car at high speeds. You know, yes, there are technicalities, but let's not get lost. Love covers so much. Love covers so much. So if in the spirit of love you are praying these prayers, it's going to get done, okay? But yes, as Paul says, insert verse. So here we see that the presence of the believing spouse in the household has a wonderful leavening effect, a wonderful sanctifying effect. And yes, 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 your prayers for your household, your prayers for your finances, your prayers for your children are very, very, very effective, even if your spouse is not joining in with you in that. So John, what about as children get older, teenage years, even older in their 20s maybe, or 30s, if our children aren't believers, what kind of spiritual authority do we have over them? Yeah, or even if they are believers as they get older. So children are under the spiritual authority of parents until what scripture calls the age of reckoning or the age of accountability. Now, again, gang, don't get lost in the technicalities here. Is that 10? Is that 17? Is that 27? The technicality is not the point. The point is, you know, when your child was one, you chose what socks they were going to wear. But you didn't do that for your 16-year-old. And when your child was three, you literally chose every single thing they were going to eat, hopefully, other than the stuff they're picking up off the kitchen floor. But you don't do that for your 18-year-old. There's a maturity process here. And as children become young adults, they do come out from under the spiritual authority of their parents because they now are adults and are accountable to the Lord. I would say the significant moment is if they are in or outside your house, if they're still under your house, if you're still paying for them, if you are their provider while they're in, you know, college or trade school Mm -hmm. or 
that sort of thing, you still have a great deal of authority there to bring spiritual blessing and protection and covering over them with your prayers. As they move on into their adult life, your prayers still matter immensely for them. But no, the 48-year-old is not under the spiritual authority of their parent anymore. And if their parent is trying to exercise that, by the way, back to the Soul Ties podcast, Mm, you're going to want to cut that off through the cross of Christ. But uh, I just want to say love, love, love. You know, the, the loving parent who is trying to usher in prayers of blessing, prayers of protection, that is always going to matter no matter how old your kids are or if they are believers or unbelievers. But on the other hand, God honors the will. And if the child has chosen to walk away from Christ, God has to honor that. Now, your prayers for their repentance and their prodigal coming home are very, very powerful. Yes. Okay. But they're not under your spiritual authority anymore. And it's important to kind of realize what is and isn't under your authority so you can learn to take authority and take jurisdiction over those things that are in your kingdom. So, John, if listeners are stepping more and more into their strength, and for instance, say they're running a basic or a small group at their church or something, and the warfare seems to be intensifying, how would you encourage them to fight as they step into that? Yeah, okay. So this is really important. So there's normal life, you know, getting up, going to work, paying the bills, feeding the dog. And then there are seasons in our life when we are, quote, on mission. You know, they are more intense periods of intentionally bringing the kingdom of God into your neighborhood. Maybe you're hosting a a neighborhood Bible study, Mm -hmm. or you are going on a mission trip, or you're holding one of the Ransomed Heart events, like a Wild at Heart basic. Yes, you will encounter higher levels of warfare, and it's part of the honor. It's part of the privilege of what it means to partner with Jesus in that. So let me speak a little bit to mission and to when you are in periods of kind of intense kingdom advocacy, whatever that may look like. Yeah, it's going to be different. And I would say a couple things that we've learned over the years. First, the power of consecration is so important. Consecrating the event or your travel, consecrating the facility you're using to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, because that way we're bringing it under his authority. And once it's under his authority, then it can enjoy his provision and his protection. And so we do this anytime we go into a place where we're holding an event, we consecrate the facility, meaning we dedicate this now to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We bring this under the rule of Jesus Christ. So you'll want to consecrate your study or your event to Jesus. And if it's more than a one-night thing, you're going to want to continue to do that over the course of time that it's going on. And then back to the Soul Ties podcast, keeping the cross of Christ between you and the people that are coming. And the reason for this is when you are partnering with God here in the world, the enemy looks for open doors. He just looks for any occasion to kind of come after us. And other people's warfare is a very convenient occasion for the enemy. As we explained earlier in the soul ties thing, spiritual warfare tries to work like a computer virus or like a flu virus. And for that matter, it tries to get into and infect the whole system. And so it's very healthy. Again, Galatians 
uh, chapter 6, we are crucified to the world through the cross of Christ, and the world is crucified to us. So even while we are advocating and ministering and teaching and intervening for people, we still keep the cross of Christ between us so that their warfare cannot transfer to us. And when you keep the cross of Christ between you, as we were explaining earlier, love can pass through, God can pass through, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit can pass through. It's just that the bad stuff can't pass through. So I would say consecration, keeping the cross, and then I think enforcing the jurisdiction of Jesus. And again, this has to do with the whole authority thing, but the demons understand that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Jesus now. And that was why back in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72, he gives them authority. They come back and they're like, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus goes, yep, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the demons know who Jesus is. They know what's been accomplished now. And so when you command, and again, this is even bedtime, you know, this is over your home, over your sleep, over your car, over your finances. But we're talking about, especially on mission, when you command, this is the kingdom of God now, this building, this study, this retreat, this basic, and I command the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ here, his rule, however you want to word it, his reign, his province, his sovereignty. Jesus Christ is Lord here in Jesus Christ alone. It's very powerful to do that in prayer. And then finally, I would say the warfare will eventually always reveal itself. The enemy always overplays his hand. He gets greedy and he plays too much. He stays hidden as long as he can, but then he'll overplay his hand and you'll know what it is. Suddenly you are swept with fear. Well, you're dealing with fear or suddenly you're swept over with lust when it wasn't there six seconds ago. Well, then it's a sexual spirit. He will reveal what he's doing. And so if your technical equipment's breaking down, oh, well, we've got sabotage mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Or if nobody's paying attention and people are talking and it's, it feels like chaos, well, it's probably chaos that's right. here. Like you'll be able to name it. Just what are you feeling? What are you observing? And then what I would say is bind those things specifically. I taught a good deal of this in moving mountains. So if you wanted to really tune up your prayer life, I strongly recommend reading that book. But one of the things I was saying was specific prayers see specific answers. Sometimes you have to get very specific with this stuff. And so, you know, if you say, gosh, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, we just command every enemy to be gone. Sometimes that works. But these guys are stubborn. They're rebellious spirits. They're fallen. They know their hour is late. They are disobedient by their very nature. So sometimes you have to get very specific. This spirit of chaos, this spirit of division and discord, this sexual spirit, we bring the victory of Jesus Christ against you and we order you banished in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So sometimes the specificity genuinely helps. That's really good. So let me ask you this. What if people are engaging? I had a friend recently who was saying they've started praying the nighttime prayer. They're more active as a husband and wife in their home against spiritual warfare than they've ever been. And yet, since they've started praying over their children, things have actually gone from bad (laughs) to worse. And so what do you say to people 
who it's like they're resisting the enemy. Yeah. They're praying. Yeah. They're doing what we've given them the tools to do. And yet things are hitting the fan even more. It feels like they're losing ground. Yes. Yes. A gang that's very common, by the way. So let's just start with you're not alone and you're not blowing it. It doesn't mean you're blowing it. It doesn't mean you're not praying well. It doesn't mean that at all. It is a war. We are in a world at war. And you have an enemy who doesn't need to sleep, doesn't need to eat, has no job. The enemy is making war against the saints and against the world 24-7. And so, again, Jesus is just trying to be very sober, not fearful, but very sober about the context. And as with many natural wars, you know, you come up against enemies that are stronger than other enemies. Stronger because they've been there for a long time, stronger because they have some sort of privilege or authority there for some reason. And we'll get into that in a moment. But oftentimes the enemy will test our resolve. Remember, God is maturing you. God is teaching you how to rule and reign. You're, you're about to help take over the reign of the universe, friends. That is your promotion that's coming. And so we will hit these stubborn places. We'll just call them stubborn places that don't seem to be responding to prayer. And the first thing that we always do is stop and ask Jesus why. We'll take our attention off the battle. We'll take our attention off the warfare. Oftentimes, if we have the space to do it, we'll turn on some worship music and we'll just completely change the atmosphere from what feels, you know, striving or frustrating or fearful. Nope. Going to turn our attention, going to play some worship, going to ask Jesus, Lord, why? Why is this stubborn? What's going on here, Lord? And again, specifics are very helpful. So you can see how all this weaves together in John 10. Jesus wants his sheep to learn how to hear his voice so that they know how to navigate the, the terrain that we find ourselves in. So we'll stop and, and we'll ask Jesus, Lord, what's going on here? What is this? You know, we've, we've been praying and, and we don't seem to be getting an answer. Tell us why, Jesus. And one of the questions we'll ask is, are there any open doors? Are there any open doors to this, this warfare staying here and not responding to prayer? Because as we explained very early on in the series, the enemy gained access to the world through the fall of Adam and Eve. And through human sin, through generational things, get there in a moment, through a variety of different opportunities, the enemy gains open doors, open windows, some opportunity to be there. For example, let's just say you are renters and you've been in this apartment for six months to a year, but you just can't seem to get the place clean. You just can't seem to secure your sleep or people keep getting sick in your family in this house or something. You want to pause and go, Jesus, what's going on? Oftentimes the open door in that instance is the previous renters, right? It was under someone else's spiritual authority. So I'll do this every time I go in a hotel room as well. But what you can do is pray very systematically like this. You say, we bring the cross and blood of Jesus Christ through this household, through this place, and we cancel all previous human sin here through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then if you know what it was, I mean, if it was a math house or 
whatever, you know, we cancel those sins through the blood of Jesus Christ now, and we seal that off. What you're wanting to do is close the doors, close the doors. Now, that's just a structural thing as you're asking Christ about something stubborn. I had a very interesting experience this weekend, Alan. One of my kids called and asked for some prayer, and and so I was driving along in my car praying for them, and Jesus said, no, first you need to forgive the people that did this. You know, it was a relational thing, and there was some tension and stuff, and of course, this Papa Bear, I'm I'm angry at the people who are, you know, being jerks towards my kids, and and Jesus said, you need to forgive them before you can even pray about this. And I knew why, because if I'm harboring resentment and anger and judgment and frankly, a little bit of hatred in my heart, right. I'm not wow. going to be able to intervene against the enemy because he traffics in that stuff. That's his currency. So sometimes it's something that we need to get straight where we go, okay, Jesus, are you showing something in us? But the point is we're asking Christ, what's the open door and how do we close that door? Um, and we always close the door through the work of Christ. It's just that we're you know, maybe we need to apply it to a particular family situation or, well, Alan, I know that you've had some questions and some things that have come up recently generationally. So let's talk about the generational thing, because that's going to shed some light here too. Yeah. Well, and to me, that's a big open door that's often unseen and we just stay unaware of. And and this is difficult, friends, because what we're about to talk about is the principle that we addressed last time. Alan and I were talking about how there are laws to the unseen realm, just as there are laws to the physical realm, like the law of gravity. And we were talking very briefly about how the sins of the fathers are passed on to the children and that idea of generational strongholds, generational sin or generational warfare can pass down through family lines. And it's a tragic truth. It's a difficult truth to swallow, but the sooner we reconcile with it, it's actually really helpful. Oh, incredibly helpful. Like, I mean, in recent weeks, I personally have been getting hit hard with just a sense of, John, I would, I would call it diminishment, a sense of dismissal. Sometimes it'd be hard to put words to, but this sense that in any setting, whether at work or at home or with my wife in a conversation, that I was, the best way to say it is the disposable one, that I had little to offer or little to say. I wasn't really being seen or known. And I was struggling with this because it was creating this sense of loss. And I was pulling out of things where I should have brought a strength. Right. And I brought it to God. And I heard God say, the enemy has long tentacles. Very intriguing thing to hear, right? So, <laughs> so I heard that and I said, yeah, I've been hit with this warfare many times. And then I heard God say, so was your father. Mm. Well, that that immediately brought up the whole topic to me of generational warfare. And my dad was a good man, but but he was a man of few words. He didn't really talk about deep things like this. I don't even think he understood the concept of generational warfare. But when I was 11, my parents divorced. And it was a situation, especially from being a child as I looked at it, as it unfolded, where he seemed to be dismissed from our home. There wasn't a major issue that I could see. And my mom uh, basically said, I'm ready to move on. And so as a child, I saw this play out. I saw how it devastated him. How disposable. How disposable he was. Your dad was. Holy cow. So 
Right. And again, I'm not passing judgment on my mom. I, I don't know all the things that happened. I was only a boy. But that was what the agreement was that I had. So back to the present time, God tells me, you have your dad's Bible, get his Bible out. And I found it. And in it was a note that he wrote right after he was dismissed from the house. Now, remember, my dad never really had a lot of deep conversation with me. And so this letter was the most revealing of what was going on with him, which gave me a key to what was going on generationally. And I have this letter here. It's 40 years old. It's it's right here in front of me. And basically, he was saying that he struggled with not feeling important, feeling unseen, that he felt like this was kind of the end of everything for him. And there were a lot of agreements in this letter. It was a two-page note that he had tucked away in his Bible, the only thing in his Bible that he had used his whole life. And so I found that, John, and it allowed me to go, okay, this is not just me. Yep. It's not an open door, in this case, from who lived in our home before we did or anything. It's it's generational. Yep. And my best guess is it probably was before my father and before his father. Yep. And so that allows for a different kind of battle instead of just trying to pray it off me or shake it off. Exactly. Or go to shame or blame to be able to enter into it and actually put a stake in the ground and just go to God and say, I break, I cut off the generational warfare in my family line, in this case, of dismissal, yes, of being unseen, of not being worthy. And so to, to go at it that way and, and basically to take claim over that ground that the enemy has been allowed to operate in. Exactly, because their sins and their agreements and frankly their behavior opens the doors. So sometimes that's the open door gang. You'll see this go down through family lines, alcoholism, sexual stuff, financial irresponsibility, violence, different things, Mm -hmm. okay? Now it it isn't always, it isn't always spiritual warfare. We're not saying that. But if this is where Jesus reveals to you, here's, here's how we would deal with that. First, you forgive. You forgive those who open the doors. Forgiveness is so powerful. So, you know, I forgive my dad. I forgive my grandfather. I forgive the family line for this. And I renounce the sins of the fathers. David does this when he ascends the throne. He renounces the sins of his fathers because he didn't want any of that stuff following him into this new level of promotion and authority, right? So I renounce the alcoholism in our family line or I renounce the sexual adultery or whatever. I bring it under the blood of Jesus Christ and we break with it now. And we're back to the Soul Ties podcast, Galatians 6. We are crucified to our family line and our family line is crucified to us and we break the claims of the enemy to use generational sin and generational warfare to pass into our household. We cancel that through the work of Christ. Yes. Now this gives us an opportunity gang. And again, you know, this isn't a particular episode about generational, so don't get hung up on that. Stay with the stay with the themes here, folks. Stronger stuff does take some perseverance. It often takes asking Jesus for the specifics or what the open door is. And there's the episode where the disciples couldn't cast out the foul spirit and 
And they asked Jesus later, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus says, oh, that kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. So sometimes we need to fast. Sometimes we need to pray. Over a period of time, sometimes one rebuke works, but sometimes the stronger stuff takes time. Don't let that discourage you because it's growing you up. It's maturing you. It's deepening your spiritual perseverance. Earlier this year, I was under some very serious spiritual attack, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And, and I've got quite a few arrows in my quiver, and none of them were working. And so I just reached out to a few friends and said, I don't want you to pray this goes away. I want you to pray that God would reveal what we're dealing with, because I want to know. I want to grow and learn. You know, if, if this thing leaves, and I don't know why, it's just going to come back. Wow. So. It took about 10 days of prayer and seeking Christ with the help of others to finally get clarity on what it was, and then we were, we were able to deal with it. And again, the specifics aren't important to this story. I'm just saying sometimes the stronger stuff takes a little more resilience and asking Jesus what the open doors are, and then asking him even, how do we pray, Lord? How do we pray about this? And what I love about that, John, is you're naming a spiritual maturity that happens as we approach warfare. Yes. And, and, you know, topics like open doors and generational warfare, I've heard a lot of people say, and I felt this way at times, man, I just don't want to pick a fight. Like, I don't want to pick a fight with the enemy because I don't want all the crap that's going to come yes. when I do. But what you're naming is the enemy is already active. It's not us picking a fight. Yes. It's us deciding to stand against it exactly. and fight back. Yeah. It, I love the scene in the Two Towers, the Lord of the Rings series, where Theoden, the king of Rohan, he says, I will not risk open war. And Aragorn looks at him you know, with this look of incredulity. He says, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. It's like, gang, if you choose to ignore this, you just let the enemy mow your grass. He just gets to steal, kill, and destroy at will then because no one's resisting him in your kingdom, whether that's mm. physical stuff or financial or relational or whatever. If you don't do what scripture commands you to do and you are commanded to resist, if you don't partner with Jesus in this, then the enemy just gets to have a field day. So John, when we resist, do we have to pray out loud for the demons, foul spirits to hear us and flee? And if we're in a public place where that wouldn't be really an option, then how do we operate in that type situation? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's airplanes, right? You don't want the people on your right and your left <laughs> thinking you're an absolute crackpot. No. And the answer is yes and no. You can pray in your union with Jesus. Because again, let's think for a moment about what we're doing. What we are doing is we are partnering with God in every dimension of our life in this world, whether it's our career or it's a vacation that we've dreamed of, whether it's a surprise birthday party we're throwing for someone or it's dealing with the enemy. We're always partnering with God. What are we up to, Jesus? What are we doing here? How do I pray? And over the party, he might say, pray joy. Right. Pray love, pray life, consecrate your party to me so that it is protected. Dealing with foul spirits, we're partnering with Jesus. So if you are on a bus or in a cab or you've got an Uber and you don't want to be shouting at, at demons, 
you and Jesus can get it done. In the quiet of your heart, the two of you are still partnering together, and the two of you together in the authority of Jesus, we banish this. Now, once I get out of the elevator (laughs) or the Uber or whatever, I might take another pass at it out loud because the demons can't read your mind. They're great at human nature and they do, you know, they'll throw fear at you and see if it works and if it works and they'll keep it up. But they don't know everything that's going on internally inside you. So sometimes, yes, sometimes you do have to get stiff with these guys and and do it out loud when you can. And if someone listening is at a church and their church does not believe in spiritual warfare, that the enemy is actively coming against us, how do you advise them to proceed in that situation? Well, yeah. So one of our sons was in a Christian middle school when the teacher in the Bible class taught them very loudly, very clearly, almost angrily, that spiritual warfare was wrong, it's unbiblical, and that you're not supposed to resist the enemy, which is heresy. It's totally contrary to what the Word of God says. And then my other son was in a Christian college and the chapel speaker did the exact same thing. You know, the devil's a toothless lion. He's lost his power. All victory is Jesus. So you don't have to worry about him now, which is, again, it's just not biblical. Mm -hmm. It's it's why we laid the scriptural foundation that we tried to lay earlier in the series. So I would say it's not uncommon to find yourself in church settings, faith settings, settings where most of the people there don't believe this. And I would say, don't make it your job to convert them. You know what? God will get to them when they're ready. But this is such a, it's such an important topic. And it's such a topic of controversy that I just wouldn't make it your mission to try and set your pastor straight or convince the people in your small group. You live your life with God and let that play out. But it does let me name something else. So one of the major enemies that you're going to encounter, gang, if you, if you haven't already, and I'll be surprised if you haven't, is the religious spirit. So remember, we're dealing with rulers, powers, authorities, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms, these various ranks and purposes of these different Elohim, these spiritual beings who once had an important role in God's kingdom, okay? but then fell and became twisted, distorted, corrupt beings. One of those distorted beings is the religious spirit, and probably a number of them, angels that were probably originally designed to protect the church, but in their fall became angels that corrupt the religious experience. And so the religious spirit is just brilliant at getting into churches and bringing in doctrine and teaching, for example, that you can't hear the voice of God. Because if he can get a church or even an entire denomination to believe that, then he cuts off millions of followers of Christ from an intimacy with God, or the religious spirit will get in and it'll be a very legalistic and very condemning situation, right? And you all have seen this, and it has different flavors in different areas. Now, the religious spirit's like the flu gang. I mean, this thing adapts every single year, because in the next church, it looks like it's exciting movement of God stuff, but it's just wacky. And anybody who walks in there goes, oh, this is just wacky. And, and he turns people off to Christianity because that particular yes. group of Christians are just so goofy in the way they talk and in their supposed experiences. So in one situation, the religious spirit is starchy 
and full of legalism. And in the next situation, he's wacky taffy, right? And it's shouting and purple hair and gold thrones and that stuff. So, but the religious spirit is something you will encounter more and more as you walk deeply with Christ because he has got so much of the church oppressed. It's very tragic. We're not blaming. We're not pointing fingers here at all. It's absolutely heartbreaking. But it's helpful to realize what you're dealing with there. And it also helps you to make your church choices wisely and not take on battles that just aren't yours to take on. I just wouldn't take it on, gang. You hold your convictions and find people who you can truly fellowship with. And so while no church is perfect, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying, how does somebody know whether to stay in a church where there's some of that or find a new church or or make some other decision? And, and it seems like it's walk with God. Like, it's always walk God. with God because you've got, if it's your family involved, you know, we made church decisions based around our kids for years where we didn't particularly find the church maturing us, but our kids enjoyed it. So we stayed there for the kids, mm-hmm. you know, and then as the kids leave, you're able to make some other decisions. You shall know them by their fruit. This is the basic thing. And Jesus lets us hold that test up to anything, whether it's a church or a teaching or a book or a corporation or a governmental system or a public school, you shall know them by their fruit. What's the fruit of it? Because if you do that, you can almost pretty quickly identify what the enemy is up to there. You go, whoa, the fruit of this is a lot of division and discord. Well, that's not from God. Or the fruit of this is a lot of guilt. Well, that's not from God. Okay, so you shall know them by their fruit. Okay, John, just a few more questions. This is a big one that I have struggled with a lot of people I think have. Knowing everything like God does, why do you think he would allow the enemy to, and the fallen angels to be thrown out of heaven here to this planet where then just knowing there's this constant battle and right. craziness? And, and right. even you read earlier Matthew ten sixteen and... Jesus says, you know, I'm sending you out. He's sending us out like sheep among wolves. Like that question of why does God place us in that situation? Yes. Yeah. Why did he do it this way? Why why didn't he, A, simply destroy all the foul spirits immediately so we could get on with the human project? Or B, why didn't he send them somewhere else? Yes. Right? I mean, eventually he's going to send them all, you know, to eternal torment. Right. right. Uh, why didn't he do that sooner? Or those kinds of questions. And how, what's the timeline of this? How did this play out? I know. I know. G.K. Chesterton said that if we are comfortable with mystery, we will be able to understand many things. But if we insist on understanding everything, we will end up mad. He didn't mean angry. He means go crazy trying to figure all this out. I don't know. I don't know. We don't have the exact definitive narrative of the fall of the angels. We have implications of it in scripture and the timing of it and and why to the earth, except for this, except for this. The human project was always one in which men and women were going to mature as the sons and daughters of God, to the point at which we would become the partners of God in the entire universe. Mm. Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna teach a soldier how to be a leader, that soldier's got to go to war. 
you know, if you're going to teach a mountain climber how to rescue people in difficult situations, then that climber is going to have to encounter some difficult situations themselves first, right? I mean, this was my training as a therapist. You know, when I was in grad school, they insisted that every student also go through therapy because it's like, hey, if you haven't looked at your own stuff, <laughs> you have no right getting into the lives of mm-hmm. other people. There is a maturing process, and God is using the present context. He is using the world at war to raise up sons and daughters who are not attached to comfort, who are not committed to happy little life, not as their primary commitment, but who are growing in holiness and wisdom and in spiritual authority through the present fight. And there's a lot of times that I wish it wasn't this way, but I trust his goodness and I trust his love and I trust that he knows what he's doing. Okay. So given that last question, what do we as soldiers and as sons and daughters trying to hold firm to life here and to fight when we have to, but to love when we can, when we start growing weary from the battle and, and it seems like all we're hearing is maybe silence from God for a season, how would you encourage the believer to step into those times? Yeah, gang, it's never about the battle. Even when you're in the battle, it's never about the battle. It's about your intimacy with God. And by the way, your intimacy with God is always the thing that is primarily attacked. Oswald Chambers says, our number one mission is to maintain vital intimacy with Jesus. And you'll find that that's often where the war is working, if not to just simply discourage you and weariness. So I would say our practices in war are really very similar to our practices outside of war. And that is, it's your life with God. It's worship. It's worship. It's Sabbath. It's scripture. You do those things that strengthen your inner being. You do those things that strengthen your union with God. You love God. You focus on Jesus and and you don't let the battle dominate. You don't let it become the main thing. Even when you are in an absolute crap storm, gang, you don't let the battle be the main thing. You keep turning your attention towards Jesus. You hang out with other people who love Jesus, you worship the sacraments, the things that strengthen you. So let me, let me as we begin to wind up here, um, the end of a long episode of a long series, let me recommend some reading. I'm going to recommend you re-listen to this and rather than try and get it all down right now, but let me recommend some reading. So We love the books of Neil Anderson. We think his stuff is super helpful. His first two books, Victory Over the Darkness by Neil Anderson, and the second of his, The Bondage Breaker by Neil Anderson. Also, he has in those books and on his website, he has something called The Seven Steps to Freedom in Christ. And it is a way of kind of taking an inventory of your life and closing doors. And he just kind of walks you back through things like, Did you watch a lot of horror films as a kid? Let's close that door. Did you get into these particular activities? Let's close that door. You know, it's a a very helpful thing. So Victory Over the Darkness, Bondage Breaker, Neil Anderson. Another book, Overcoming the Adversary by Mark Bubeck. Spiritual Warfare, 
the title of another book by Timothy Warner, two excellent books. And then if you really need to do your homework, if you want to really dig in, there is a massive book called The Handbook for Spiritual Warfare by Ed Murphy, former missionary, former head of a major missionary organization, great guy, wrote this book. It's hefty. It's almost the size of a phone book, but it's, it's good reading and training if you find that you need it. Let me say a few things, dear ones, by way of closing. Ransomed Heart is actually not a spiritual warfare ministry. It's not, it's not our main focus. It's not our main goal. We just had to learn this stuff because when you go out to try and rescue human lives, or frankly, if you just seek to live your life with God, you know, in your quiet little part of the world, it, you are going to end up encountering the war. And so we had to grow in this. But I do want to say we're, we're not experts. We're just trying to share some notes with you as student to student. We have a very small team here, and we won't be able to handle the host of questions that are out there now. We just, we don't have a massive staff to handle like correspondence and stuff. So I'm sorry for that. But Jesus taught us, and I know that he'll teach you. What we are doing is lifting up Jesus Christ. What we're doing is we're proclaiming his victory and his goodness. We want intimacy with God and we want the restoration of our lives that he promises. And in order to do that, we had to learn the things that we've been sharing with you. Now, as a father, let me share a couple thoughts. Gang, the hour is actually very late. I believe that the return of Jesus is drawing very near. And the enemy is freaking out. And I simply don't know one Christian. I don't know anybody who's seeking to walk with God that doesn't find themselves in a pretty big fight with the enemy at some point. It's just the nature of the story right now. It's, you know, we're kind of living towards the end of Lord of the Rings and things really heat up, you know, living towards the end of, you know, Normandy and things are really heating up. You just take any of the great stories historic or, or fictional, and, and put yourself at the end and go, wow, it's really thick right now. Exactly. All the more reason to love God, pursue God, pursue those things that deepen your life with God, like take your life with God seriously, because you're going to need the spiritual strength for the hour, and you're going to need the intimacy with God to navigate the fight that you find yourself in. I want to close by reading Psalm 91, both because it's a fabulous warfare psalm, but I want to read it together almost as a declaration over our lives. It's a very, very powerful thing to declare the scripture over your life. And so we're going to do this together. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. 
A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. I believe that's speaking of demons, by the way. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and if you make the Most High your dwelling, in other words, if you choose a life that is consecrated and you are abiding in God and in his resources, no harm will overtake you. No disaster come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. We declare that over our lives today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We lift up Jesus Christ and we declare his beauty, his goodness, his authority, and the victory of the full work of Christ over each of our lives today and throughout our kingdom. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. <music> 